I want to show you when we get back into it and kind of conclude that is this is just right here over here. This is John Calvin's commentaries. Uh, this is what he this is what he wrote. This is this, every book of the Bible, not quite every book of the Bible, but most of the books of the Bible on the ends are two different versions of his institutes of the Christian religion. Uh, it's a theology book. Um, when you uh, when people will callously say, well, I'm not a Calvinist, they don't know anything about what they're talking about. Unless you've read Calvin, you have no idea what that even means. This is a man who, imagine writing, I mean, are you, any of you good enough to sit down and start in Genesis and comment on every verse of the Bible, right down to the end for the rest of your life? Uh, preach every day, twice a day, Monday through Friday. Preach twice on, on uh, Sunday and take Saturday off all of his life. That's what he did, doing this. This was a man, and this is just a scratching the surface of what he has written. John Calvin was a Bible teacher extraordinaire. He took the Bible in a day when there weren't other commentaries sitting around. He could not surround himself with other books and what everyone else said. He did quote from St. Augustine. But this is a man who took God's word very seriously from the Greek text, interpreted it, told you what it said, what it meant, and what to do with it. He interpreted it through the lens of his day, which was through, through the Catholic Church. And so he, makes, he rails a lot against Roman Catholicism, based on what the Bible itself teaches. So be very careful when you talk about John Calvin. Now, you don't like him or you don't, you're not a Calvinist. By the way, John Calvin did not write those five points that you may love or not love. Um, John Calvin was not a five-point, four-point Calvin. This is what Theodore Beza put together. Uh, even the Arminian, the five uh, points of Arminianism wasn't put, by, put together by Jacob Arminius. So just make sure that before you go in and you say, well, well, I don't uh, like Calvin, I don't respect Calvin, make sure you know what the heck you're talking about before you say such nonsense. Um, because this man today, uh, over 500 years later, I consult him regularly. If you like me and what I preach, I'm getting a lot of my stuff from John Calvin. And so you can't say you don't like John Calvin and like Lance Wally. We're really, and, and I get that from anyone who has commented on the Bible in a conservative way. So make sure you know a little thing or two about John Calvin before you, you might say something good or bad. The effects of, of Calvinism um, went way beyond what you might think. Um, the arrows on this map here uh, show where the refugees, uh, for all the refugees, came from. And the width of the arrows, the proportion to the number of refugees. By far, the majority of the refugees came from France. So you can see all of these um, these people coming in and going out and learning Calvinism. So when we say Calvinism, all we mean, just make sure you note this, we're talking about what the Bible says. There was no Bible teacher in the day. Luther was around, and Luther did teach from the Bible as well, as did Zwingli. John Calvin was the scholar par excellence. And when you wanted to learn, what does the Bible say? You might say today, I just want to learn the Bible. Wherever you, you want to go to learn the Bible, people back then, I'm going to John Calvin's Geneva, and I'm going to learn the Bible because he taught every single day. The Geneva Academy, which is where uh, Calvin taught in Switzerland, he established an academy at Geneva to train Reformed pastors. It turned out Reformed scholars who went from Geneva to many parts of Europe, spreading Calvinism well beyond Geneva, making it the largest Protestant movement for the next two centuries. Two centuries. This was no quick uh, drop-in-the-bucket theology. This was huge and went out to the world. Between 1555 and 1562, Geneva sent out 118 pastors. The arrows show the country which the pastors were sent. The thickness of the arrow indicates a relative number of missionaries. So where did most of them go? France. It's kind of odd, right? You think, well, Calvinism didn't do a whole lot there. You know why it didn't? Because they killed them all. They killed all the Calvinists, and the Calvinists fled from France. You've heard of the, uh, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. What were, Calvinism, what were Calvinists called that lived in France, you know? Huguenots. So it began in Switzerland. It spread down the Rhine to the Netherlands. John Knox brought it to Scotland. The Puritans brought it to England, but couldn't get control of the English government there. Calvinists in France were called Huguenots and just a few Calvinists in the northern part of Italy. So a good portion of Europe, certainly the scholarly portion of Europe, is now filled with Calvinistic teaching, which just means Bible teaching. These French Calvinists, the Huguenots, Calvinists in France were called the Huguenots, as I said. They, were, they controlled parts of France, that, those parts shown in blue, especially the southern part. 
But Huguenots were fiercely persecuted and ultimately did not survive in France. Uh, They were highly persecuted, as I said. Eventually, hundreds of thousands of Huguenots fled France for England, Holland, Germany, and what would become the United States of America. The Reformation was essentially ended in France at this time, sometime around 1575, give or take, after they expelled them. Now, the English Reformation, as I was thinking about it today and praying through the English Reformation and and wondering each time I teach church history, Lord, how are we bringing glory to you by teaching church history and not going through your word? Uh, I, I chuckled. Church history is, is just laughable. It's laughable in the sense that Jesus came to earth and established his church. Did he not? It's the one thing he established. He didn't establish anything on the earth except the church. And to look back at church history, won't you agree, isn't it embarrassing and laughable? And especially when you get to the English Reformation, people just make their own rules. It is, this is un- unbelievably interesting, I think, the English Reformation part of it. And mind you, the Reformation is a back to the Bible. Luther took it, Zwingli took it, Calvin took it. When it comes to England, it's a, it's a drama. It would make a wonderful X-rated movie. Let me just say, take the wonderful out. It would take a X-rated movie. Not wonderful. Yeah, that, that, I didn't need that that uh, filler in there. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.10, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. How do you think the church has done and is doing? We have all kinds of disagreements. And we can disagree without dividing. Don't you agree? Or are you going to divide on that one? <laughs> And we should. We should disagree on things. There's some things we're not going to agree on. But to agree to disagree in, to the glory of God is, is our goal. Sometimes that happened. Sometimes it did not. The Lutheran books that Martin Luther had written, he smuggled or got smuggled. He didn't smuggle them. Got smuggled into England. Uh, they were smuggled around 1520. Uh, the Diet of Worms was 1521. So his books were out there and they're making their way around the empire. Students at Clare College and Trinity Hall began reading Luther's books. They gathered at the White Horse Inn to discuss Luther's theology. That's what you would expect. God's spreading the Reformation. At the Church of St. Edward the Confessor, Thomas Bilney, who died in 1531, a Cambridge professor, was one of the first converts to Lutheranism, to Jesus Christ, we would say, through Luther's books. He converted a man named Robert Barnes and Hugh Latimer. Ever hear of these guys? Uh, if, you've, if you've ever got a copy of Barnes's Notes, yeah. yeah. And Hugh Latimer was a, once a Catholic priest, and he will, uh, he will die. I'll show you where he dies. Uh, you may have read his account before, along with um, um, his uh, partner. Um, his name eludes me, but it'll come to me in a minute. First Bible sermons were preached in England, were preached at this church. Still stands today. Uh, and so a trip through London and through parts of England is a... Uh, well worth your church history time, your time to, to uh, kind of peruse through some church history. At this time, Thomas Bilney was in the habit of preaching to the open, preaching in the open to the crowds. Thomas More arrested Bilney and put him in the Tower of London for a year. Tower of London was a great, this huge place right off the river, uh, amazing, beautiful castle, and in one of the towers there is a, a jail, and you go there uh, if you're bad. In this day, you go there if you're Protestant. And he went there and was burned to death. Uh, when England went Protestant, and they did, uh, Henry VIII was, was Catholic and then moved more towards Protestantism. Uh, or this was around 1534. Scotland itself remained Catholic. This is when we're going to see the division between these two countries, why it happened, and some of the personalities that popped up. Scotland was, however, flooded by Lutheran books, also being smuggled in there. So God is... is Spreading out the truth in the midst of Roman Catholic doctrine, in the midst of what we know as the Reformation, and the world is changing from, uh, from one end of the globe to the other. George Wishart was a Scottish reformer. He went to Wittenberg to study under Luther, returning to preach the Reformation in Scotland. And he's the first one. Who, who do you normally think of when you think of the Reformation in Scotland? John Knox. Well, Wishart was Knox's mentor. Uh, Knox loved uh, John Calvin and learned much under John Calvin, but Wishart 
uh, was leading this Reformation in Scotland. And at some point, Wishart would not let Knox go with him back to Scotland because he knew he'd be killed. And he was. He, he did not want Knox to be killed along with him. This reform-minded Scottish priest named John Knox accompanied Wishart for a while, and as I said, Wishart left him behind when he knew he was going to die. After a short and successful ministry, George Wishart was captured by the Catholics and burned at St. Andrews. And that's how you killed people then. You didn't wait, you didn't kill them and then burn them. You put them in a fire like that, you lit the fires underneath them, and you watched them burn. And people recorded what they said and how they died. Some died quickly. Some burned quickly. Thomas Cranmer, I'll tell you later, uh, who died, did not burn well and did not burn quick and stumbled and fell in the fire and even yelled out, I'm not burning well. Knox survived this, uh, uh, what Wishart went through and would later succeed at converting uh, Scotland and making it uh, what we call Presbyterian or as part of the, the, uh, the Reformation in Scotland. So Henry VIII originally was Catholic, supported the Pope. He reigned 1509 to 1547, that's when he died. He was a supporter of Catholicism, and he ordered Lutherans in England burned at the stake. Wanted nothing to do with that, with what was seeping into his country. He wrote a book against Martin Luther called The Assertion of the Seven Sacraments. You don't normally think of, of Henry VIII being an author, but Henry VIII was brilliant. And uh, Cheryl and I were watching something the other night, uh, apparently when he was young, uh, he was quite uh, the beautiful man, uh, quite, quite a stud, we might say. Um, it's funny because when he popped in one of his wives, one of his would-be wives, uh, after it was like the fifth or sixth one, uh, he had never met her before. She had never met him in person. We popped in on her. We were kind of surprised. He expected her to be taken with him. She was disgusted by him. Uh, and that didn't go over well for him. For her, I should say. <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, Most Holy Father, I most humbly commend myself to you and devoutly kiss your blessed feet. We believe that no duty is more incumbent upon, the Catholic, upon a Catholic sovereign than to preserve and increase the Christian faith by his example in preventing them from being destroyed by any assailant of the faith. What uh, title did the Pope later give Henry VIII for defending Catholicism against Lutheranism? Defender of the faith, which every... English sovereign now is given today. Isn't that a joke that Charles today is called the defender of the faith? It's as big a joke as it was when Henry was called that. So he says, so when we learn that the great, and he's buttering up the, the, the Pope at this point. So when we learn that the great pest of Martin Luther's heresy had appeared in Germany and was raging everywhere to such an extent that many infected with its poison were falling away, we were so deeply grieved at this heinous crime of the German nation that we bent all our thoughts and energies on uprooting in every possible way this cockle, this heresy from the Lord's flock. So you can see what he thinks of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther hears about this. Does Martin Luther turn the other cheek? Here's what he says. Martin Luther, speaking of himself in the third person. Martin Luther, minister in Wittenberg by God's grace to Henry, that lubberly ass, <laughs> that crowned donkey, that frantic madman, that king of lies by God's disgrace, king of England. Since with malice and a forethought that damnable and rotten worm has lied against my king in heaven, it is right for me to bespatter this English monarch in his own filth. What do you think he means? <laughs> Just spit it out, right? Don't tiptoe. Henry and his Catholic Chancellor, Thomas More, <clears throat> excuse me, persecuted evangelicals. The Lollards, remember who the Lollards are? Class, Lollards, they're the followers of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. Oh, yeah, like you, you knew. You were asleep during that. Uh, it's a word that just means people, some people don't even know why, but it was a word that um, I've actually forgotten, quite frankly. People that kind of, no, well, they were mumbers, yeah, mumbers mumbling around, thank you, Ed, it, that's exactly what it means, mumbers mumbling around their bad theology. Somebody was listening, right? So his Catholic chancellor, Thomas More, they persecuted these people, like the Lollards, followers of John Wycliffe, the Lutherans, Anabaptists, when they could find them, they persecuted them. Fox's Book of Martyrs lists 18 
um, executed between 1518 and 1532. That's nothing compared to what his daughter will do. Uh, but they executed these for just simply being Bible-believing Christians. you got to think about that today. We go to a Bible church. If you don't come to this Bible church, you go to a Baptist church or something, you go there because you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe that the Bible is God's word. Believing that in those days bought you a death, a slow, painful death in fire. But in 1534, Henry became more of a Protestant or began to move in that direction. Uh, the people that were around Henry, you have to know, people like Thomas Cranmer uh, were, uh, were amazingly wonderful Protestant Christians. And Cranmer was a behind-the-scenes, he, he was a priest, but he was married without anyone knowing. He believed what he believed, and he did what he could to serve Henry. And Henry loved Thomas. Uh, William Tyndale, his dying words were, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Uh, and so people were praying for Henry. Henry might be with Jesus. I'll show you. Uh, just what, what little we know at the end, um, he might be. There's a possibility. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he might be. So Henry married Catherine of Aragon, that's Spain, uh, his brother Arthur's widow after only four months of marriage. So his brother Arthur married this woman, and four months later he died. Now, Catherine will later say that they never consummated their marriage. The marriage was never consummated. And that's going to factor in later to be important. Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. So she's the these king and queen. That's who she's the daughter of. So you can't just say, I'm done with you, lady. This is Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter. And there's other connections as well. His, and her nephew was Charles V, the Roman emperor. That's the one that Martin Luther stood before. Said, I can do no more. God help me. Amen. So there's a lot going on, and Henry no longer wants to be married to her. Um, this Catherine of Aragon, she bore Henry six children, five of which died, leaving only one surviving female, which drove Henry insane. He wanted a male. Mary is the only heir to England's throne. So he becomes more and more uh, hateful towards, Eric, towards uh, Catherine, thinking that she's cursed, I'm cursed. Since Henry wanted a son as king, he felt as if God had cursed him for marrying his brother's wife. Uh, he had eyes for Anne Boleyn, this next wife, while he had affairs with Anne Boleyn's sister. Now, here's the thing that, and, and he had affairs with others. In fact, he had other male children, but they were uh, out of wedlock. They, couldn't, they weren't, didn't have the right to be king. Here's what Henry grappled with. When he first married Catherine of Aragon, being his brother's um, wife, he looked at passages and was comforted by passages like Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5, which says, her husband's brother shall go into her, her dead husband's. So a woman marries a man. That man dies. She goes to her. The brother of that man is to marry her and bring about children. That's called the Leverite marriage, right? You had no offspring. Your brother will come in. So if she's married to a guy named John, John dies and they marry Henry. Henry will impregnate her and whatever baby she has will be named after John, the first husband. That's what a Leverite marriage was. So it's legal in the Bible, and some men had two wives, perhaps three or four, based on Leverite marriages. It wasn't forbidden in that regard. But Leviticus 20.21 20, says, if there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they will be childless. So Henry's going back and forth, and if you watch a historical show, they'll say, it. well, Henry was caught between the contradictions of the Bible. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. There was a, a way for a woman whose husband had died to have children in her husband's name through the Leverite system. That's what Deuteronomy 25.5 is. But for a man to, to seek after his brother's, his brother's wife or daughter and to have relations with her was completely sinful and abhorrent to God. But Henry is now thinking, since I married my brother's wife, Leviticus 20.21 20, is really getting in my way. Maybe that's why we're childless. Even though they weren't childless, they didn't have a boy. So he's thinking, I'm cursed. Therefore, I should get rid of this woman. Okay? So he does. He appealed to the Pope to annul this marriage to Catherine. The Pope refused since Charles V was Catherine's nephew. So the Pope is over the church. Charles V is emperor, and that's her nephew. Uh, that's sticky, real sticky. When the Pope would not grant a divorce to Henry VIII, Henry declared the English church free from submission to the Pope. Can he do that? I mean, if you don't like the power, just say, you're wrong. Just pull a Donald Trump. Wrong. 
He can't excommunicate the Pope, but he can just quit. Can the Pope excommunicate him? Yes, but the Pope was, his hands were tied too. He didn't, he had problems on both sides. Henry's new church, which I think is hilarious just to write, his new church, the Anglican church, granted his divorce. Why? Because he's the head of it. He made himself the head of that church. So there's Catherine of Aragon on the left and Anne Boleyn, who has his eye on the right. She's gone. Anne is there. They're looking at each other with lovey-dovey eyes. And he was so taken by Anne Boleyn, apparently. Uh, Anne Boleyn is buried, by the way. I've seen her grave in Westminster Abbey. By the way, it's Westminster. Don't ever say Westminster. We were watching the show the other day. The guy kept saying Westminster. Or it was a sermon. It's Westminster. It means church. It's church. Westminster. It's a strange word to us, but that's what it is. Make sure you get it right. Prostate, prostrate. Cavalry, Calvary. The Anglican Church is now distinct from the Roman Catholic Church. Four. Pope or Henry VIII. Uh, and not the Pope was now its head. Monasteries, because Henry didn't like them anymore and they were Catholic, were closed in England and Henry confiscated all their wealth. Now, mind you, in this time when he's confiscating wealth, uh, he has no, Henry has no ability to ordain. He knows he's not a churchman. He's not been anointed by God. And so what will take the place of his ability to do that will be, anyone know, the position that was then, that is now, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which at this time will be Thomas Cranmer. William Tyndale appears in the scene, right in the midst of this. William Tyndale. If you like your King James Bible, William Tyndale, you have to thank. King James didn't write it. He authorized it, but William Tyndale wrote it, 90% of it. And what's in your King James Bible today and how it's translated elsewhere is mostly the work of William Tyndale. Meanwhile, an Englishman named William Tyndale, who died in 1536 because he was betrayed and killed by Henry's men. He wanted to translate the scriptures so that even, as he said, a plowboy could read and understand God's word. Plowboy would be the lowest of the low, an uneducated kid. He's saying, I want to be able to put the Bible in English so that the lowest of the low can read it, know it, know Christ. He was a Cambridge reformer, one of the Cambridge reformers, or known as. He made it his life ambition to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English, and he did. Uh, though translating the Bible was illegal in England, Tyndale did it anyway, and he fled from England to the continent to, uh, to finish his work. The bishops of England bought his Bibles so they could burn them <clears throat> by the hundreds. In 1524, Tyndale went to, back to the continent where, among other places, he went to Wittenberg to learn from Luther, who had recently translated the New Testament in German. I said back to the continent. He went to the continent and made his way over to uh, Wittenberg where he too learned under Martin Luther. After the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, because he was able to say, look, um, my children are illegitimate. This marriage is a farce. God cursed me. I'm going to get rid of it, because God loves that when you do that. You didn't like this marriage. Uh, Lord, what we'll do is we'll just get rid of her, either through a divorce or annulment, and you'll bless the next one. People think that all the time, um, for no good reason. Uh, and so he... Uh, Tyndale denounced this, and when Tyndale denounced it, that didn't make him any friends with Henry. Tyndale was captured by Henry's soldiers, strangled, and burned for simply translating the Bible into English. Um, he was, if you've ever read his story, and I could, I could go on, we could do a whole lecture on William Tyndale. He um, was in, uh, um, he trusted certain people. He was working on his translation. He had a, a quiet place, and he trusted certain people, and uh, through a long, narrow place in Antwerp, uh, he, he was caught by the guards who had planned to get him and one that he loved and, and uh, trusted betrayed him unto death and he was burned. And his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. How about that for a final prayer? It wasn't, it wasn't illegal in Germany uh, to do that. Uh, but whatever Luther did, uh, he did it under the, the protection of Frederick the Wise, the, the, the elector of Saxony. 
Uh, and so there wasn't a persecution in that. It just, it just reformed. It just spread that reformation. Uh, in England with Tyndale, uh, it, was, it was highly illegal. It was dangerous in the minds of the people that, that reigned. If someone knows the Bible, uh, that might change everything. And so, yeah, it was different. Maybe not here you don't, but there's plenty of, I mean, it, within, within theological and academic circles, yeah. <laughs> Consider yourself privileged not to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, but, but both were scholars. Both took from Greek and put it into German or put it into English. And so it was a, it was a translation straight from the original into the, the vernacular of the day. But I'll give you a lecture one time. I'll put you to sleep in a hurry on those. Not long after... These are when Tyndale's dying words. Henry authorized a copy of the Bible in English. How about that? Tyndale's prayer was actually answered. And just before his death, Thomas Cranmer urged Henry to receive Christ. Unable to speak, he squeezed Cranmer's hand tightly, then he died. Now, what that means? Don't know. Don't know. Uh, ten, or, Henry VIII knew a lot of things, uh, but knowledge doesn't save. Faith in Christ saves. His life doesn't look like he did. Uh, Cranmer ministered to him. Cranmer was a good and godly man, uh, and he was surrounded, and he had moved more towards the Protestant way. Uh, he may have continued to hate Luther, but uh, uh, he, he authorized for his entire nation a Bible in English. That says something. His other marriages after Catherine of Aragon was executed. By the way, you don't just divorce him and say, here's, here's uh, my uh, alimony or palimony or whatever you're going to pay. Uh, you just kill him. And so she was beheaded, and then he married Anne Boleyn, whom later he also beheaded because she couldn't give him a boy. <laughs> Anne was definitely executed. She apparently was a, a great and godly woman, very Protestant, uh, who also was, uh, had an effect on Henry until she could not give him a boy. Uh, his third wife was Jane Seymour, um, he, whom he bore a son with, Edward VI, and she, uh, she died about a year later. In fact, she might have died from the childbirth. Okay, good, all right. <laughs> His fourth wife was Anne of Cleves, whom he thought was disgusting. He saw a picture of her, thought it was a good picture, saw her in person, didn't like her. Uh, yeah, he did, for the 1540. Um, his fifth wife was Catherine Howard. Notice how many Anne's and Catherine's he had. And his sixth wife was Catherine Parr. So uh, a couple of Catherine's, um, two Anne's and a Jane. Uh, notice this. I mean, these are six marriages. This man is, and, and it's not so much that he was a bad husband. None of this says that he was a terrible husband. He was staunchly and absolutely maniacally looking for a male heir. He was looking for a male heir. Even though Edward came from Jane Seymour, he was still looking for male heirs. You've got to be able to secure the throne. Uh, and it's amazing is that Henry VIII's Progeny, so many women. There are so many women who come for, even from his dad, Henry VII. I'll show you the, I'll really spin your mind here in a minute with uh, the, the family tree. So after Henry, Edward reigned, Edward VI. His three children, he had Mary from Catherine of Aragon. He had Elizabeth uh, I, who reigned for a good while, um, but she was from uh, Anne Boleyn. That's all he got from Anne. And then Edward finally got the boy he wanted from Jane Seymour. Now, he was a sickly child, unfortunately, and he only lived to age 15. Uh, but he did become king, and he was a Protestant king, and Edward was, by all accounts, a good and godly young man. He reigned from the age of nine to the age of 15, surrounded by Thomas Cranmer and the good men who were Protestants, and they Protestantized England. 1547 to 1553, since Edward was just a boy of nine, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and others ruled for him. Many of these men wanted more, a more thorough reformation in England, than they got from Henry, but they got it in Edward because he was a bit of a puppet, puppet king because he was a child, but he was brilliant. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury, as I said. Cranmer and other Cambridge reformers like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, it's the other one I was thinking of earlier, who died with Latimer, they began to change the Anglican church. So in the time that Edward is king, Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer began to revolutionize England. And it's, going to, and it's one of those things you look at and you go, why didn't God let that continue? Why wouldn't he? And you know, you can look back on so many historical events and wonder why God let that happen. 
Why didn't that person get to keep reigning? Why did that person die so young? Why did the next person come into power? God, don't, don't think that, that God owes us that because Thomas Cranmer and Edward VI proved that God could have taken England to the nth degree in this wonderful, but he didn't. No, it's not going to happen. Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley eliminated Catholic opponents by executing them by burning. So these are Protestants executing Catholics. Later it'll, she will be in the other foot. Came back on them when the tide turned against them. Unfortunately for the Protestants, Edward died at age 15. His Catholic half-sister Mary became queen, 1553 to 1558. So she is the firstborn, or she is the, 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 daughter, the only remaining daughter he has from Catherine of Aragon, who was not executed, but who died of a lung problem of some sort. <laughs> he did put her away. Yes, he did put her away for a while. I had to shut her up for a bit. So uh, Mary the first. But there was a queen in between, Edward and Mary. Do you know her name? Lady Jane Grey. She reigned for nine days. Pretty, pretty dramatic, I would say. Here she is, 15 years old. Following Edward's death, knowing the Catholics would take over, Edward knew that, with Mary I as queen, Lady Jane Grey was placed on the throne in July 1553 for nine days. At first, she didn't want it. Two days in, she was sold on it. She wanted it. She fought for it. There was a civil war just over a couple of days. But the Privy Council, which is this council surrounding this young girl, who made the decisions, later proclaimed Mary I as queen. And Lady Jane Grey was promptly beheaded. Now, between those two bullet points is an amazing story. An amazing story. It's, it's one to watch. Two-part series. You can watch it on YouTube and other channels. Uh, but it's just an amazing story because she was an amazing woman. And, some, some, uh, uh, and you wonder, why God? Why didn't Lady Jane Grey get to be the queen? She would have been so fantastic following after Edward VI. But God said, apparently, no, that's not what I want. Not what I want. Now, her husband was named Lord Guilford Dudley. I think it was Dudley. And part of that Privy Council was a man named Northumberland. Northumberland is a, is a section, a place in England, but it's a man's name. Northumberland was pulling the strings behind the scene. And he wanted Lady Jane Grey on that throne as much as Edward VI did. She's a cousin to Edward VI. She's part of Henry VIII's loins, or really from Henry VII's, VII's that family, the Tudor family is what she's part of. But along the way, um, Mary I offered, when she was out, she wasn't queen, she was offering Northumberland, look, if you repent of what you've done, I will forgive you. I will show grace, and you will be in my cabinet. For a while, he rebelled. Later on, he finally gave in. The Privy Council gave in. But he had a son named Lord Guilford Dudley. And D Dudley married Lady Jane Grey. What appears to most church historians is that Northumberland was going to try to bring power to himself through his son, because if his son marries the queen, he becomes what? King. Problem was, Lady Jane Grey said, no, you're not going to be king in my regime, even though you're my husband. I'll make you duke. This infuriated Northumberland. This made the Civil War for nine days a big mess, a big problem. And so, eventually, Mary I is queen. So, let's take a look. Um, I know it's late in the day, but uh, if you've ever wanted to know and memorize the the family tree of Henry VIII, here it is. It's been a good bit of while doing this. This is one of the, the edits I've done on my teachings from the past. Henry, the, Henry VII had three children. Now, a lot of these names will overlap, so you're going to get confused. Margaret, Henry VIII, and Mary. He also had Arthur, Elizabeth, Catherine, Roland, Edmund, and Edward. Okay, But these are the main ones, Margaret, Henry VIII, and Mary. These are the ones that lived. Margaret married James IV of Scotland. So now, all of a sudden, there's a connection with Scotland through Margaret, her marriage. They bore a, a son, James V, who married Mary of Geese. Mary of Geese. This union bore Mary, Queen of Scots. So Margaret's granddaughter would become Queen of the Scots in Scotland. Her marriage with her husband bore James VI of Scotland, who became James I in England, whom we know as King James. 
became king over all of Scotland and England later, and he became known as James I. Henry VIII, he had three children whom he named, well, Henry VII, three children, once again, were Margaret, Henry VIII, and Mary. Henry married Catherine of Aragon of Spain, who died of a lung problem, not beheaded. <laughs> she was the widow of Arthur. <laughs> See, I learn. I, I can learn, too. They bore Mary I. Oh, I'm, see, I'm telling English history in front of a Briton. She was poisoned. So her poison caused a problem in her lung after she was locked up and she died by beheading. <laughs> okay. Those listening online are going, what is wrong with that class? <laughs> so Henry married Catherine of Aragon, and this was the, brother, the widow of his brother. They bore together Mary I, whom John Fox called Bloody Mary, the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Henry later married Anne Boleyn, and they bore Elizabeth I. Remember Elizabeth II was the second Elizabeth who just died recently. Henry married also, his third marriage was Jane Seymour, and they produced... Together, Edward VI, the one boy in the midst of all of these people, other than the ones that are born in Scotland. His third one was Mary. This is Henry the, um, that should say, uh, that's Henry VII. His three children, again, were Margaret, Henry VIII, and Mary. This is the third one. Mary Tudor. She married Louis XII, who was king of France. That makes her the queen of France. They bore Francis and Eleanor, two more girls. Francis had three children, Jane, that's going to be whom we know as Lady Jane Grey, Catherine, and Mary. Jane married Northumberland's son, Lord Guilford Dudley, who thought he'd be king if he married Jane. Jane said, not going to have it, you'll be duke. And so their plans changed and Mary came in. Eleanor bore Margaret. So there's the, the, the family tree. Now here's Bloody Mary. That's not really what you want as a, the name in front of your, 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 uh, your real name, but I found that font and thought that would be really good. And, you know, because blood is red, I thought I'd make it you know, red. It's pretty creative of me, frankly. And, and I was pretty proud of myself for doing it. You know, when I have all these slides that I've taught in the past, but to go back and to go through them again, I've got to enter, put a bunch of new ones in, and I always think I can make that better. So a lot of tweaks. In 1553, Henry's daughter, Mary I, who reigned from 1553 to 58, returned to English churches to Roman Catholicism, executing more than 300 Protestants in five years, hence her name. And bloody was given her, as I said earlier, by John Fox. Um, Mary burned as part of her, her uh, plan. She burned Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. These were the Protestant pastors in that day. On this spot, that's me standing there with my buddy Roy Ledgewood and his daughter. And that's the very spot there in Oxford where they were burned. In fact, if you go over to the building opposite uh, there are burn marks all over the building from, from the burnings that took place in those days. That day. It's very sobering to stand there in such a spot and see that. Um, uh, Latimer, as he was dying, said this, his, his words were recorded, saying, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, as they're burning together, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light, a, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. And there's the spot right there in the middle of the street where I was standing earlier. Um, I'm pretty sure there were no bicycles back in that day, but uh, that's the same building, and that's where they burned them. Now, from this, from this location, there's a tower at St. Mary's that is also a prison, and while Latimer and Ridley are burning to death, Thomas Cranmer has been put in jail. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury, Henry VIII's right-hand man. He's been arrested by, by Mary, and he is watching their burning. He's watching these men, his friends, burn to death, scares him to death. Here he is. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer from 1489 to 1556, he recanted his Protestant faith after watching his friends burn as they did. He wrote it down. He recanted. She put him up there to recant, and he writes out his recantation. I no longer believe this because he didn't want to die like that. He was supposed to read it, take him down to St. Mary's Church, uh, sat in that church, sat there and still and, and thought about what it must have been like for, for Cranmer to come in there, and, and the queen thinks he's going to read his recantation, but he recants. His recantation. 
And he begins to read it. And as he reads his recantation, he is rushed out to the flames where he too is killed. Later, he recanted his recantation while confessing his sins. Here's a picture of him. You'll notice any picture of Cranmer has his hand out. Uh, when he signed the confession or his, his recantation of his faith, he felt like his words were, this is the hand that offendeth. And so he, he said, when I go to burn at the stake, I will burn my hand first. And he did. He watched his hand burn down to the bone because it offended him because it, you know, he recanted it. He was burned at the stake March 21st, 1556. He did not die easily. At the same location where he watched his friends Latimer and Ritley be burned, putting forth his hand that denied his faith to burn first. These exiles, call them Marian exiles, they're um, fleeing Mary. Hundreds of Protestant leaders fled England and settled in Geneva, Zurich, Strasbourg, and Amsterdam. There they learned Calvinistic doctrines. John Knox was one of the Protestant exiles fleeing England under Mary, and he went and stayed with Calvin in Geneva. Elizabeth, Henry's daughter by Anne Boleyn, ruled England after Mary died, and she died just after six short years. Um, Obviously, uh, Elizabeth ruled much longer. Uh, She chose a middle way between Protestantism and Catholicism for the Church of England, and it's called the Anglican Church, which still exists today. Anglican Church, and what came out of the Anglican Church is the Methodist Church, which we have today. And so Anglican Church, Church of England, um, that's created. Hers was, I'm not fully Protestant, I'm not fully Catholic. Actually, she was very Protestant. She just liked all the beauty and the rituals of Catholicism. So she was essentially a Protestant, kind of the middle road, though. Hundreds of Marian exiles returned to England after Elizabeth's coronation, bringing Reformed and Calvinistic ideas with them. So they all fled under Mary. They go get trained. So you see some good. God gets rid, expunges them out. They go get trained. Elizabeth reigns. They come back. This is, these are the seeds of you and me on this continent. This is where it begins. John Knox also returned to Scotland where Protestant nobles promised to protect him from the Catholic monarch Mary, Queen of Scots a niece of Henry VIII, offspring of James, king of Scotland, through Mary of Geese, which I showed you earlier, which no doubt you memorized. Queen Mary of Scots got involved in in adulterous affairs with at least two other men while she was still married. She fled to England where Elizabeth had her executed for threatening her own throne. And there are conversations recorded between John Knox and Mary, queen of Scots, and she hated him and he hated her. Uh, She was somewhat afraid of him, and so he was able to stand up boldly to her telling her, I'm Protestant, I will not do the Roman Catholicism, I will not partake of the Mass. Uh, And they had some pretty interesting conversations, but she was a very immoral woman. With Mary gone, once she died, uh, Knox and the Protestants of Scotland raised her son, James. And by the way, that's whom we know as King James. They raised him to be a Protestant. You'd think if you're raised by John Knox and the Protestants, this would be a great and godly guy. He wasn't much of one. In fact, he was a homosexual, uh, believe it or not. He had a wife, but he was also homosexual. In the Presbyterian Church, Knox established a Reformed church in Scotland, but called a Presbyterian church, which is a reference to the type of government the church followed. That's the reason his theology is just like John Calvin's. John Knox, except that John Calvin is part of a committee. He's part of a, a government in Geneva that runs the whole town. Knox is a little bit different. It's not a, it's not a Reformed country quite yet, and so the church becomes a little more independent. And the church is governed by a group of elders, presbyters, which is the same way the, the Presbyterian church is run today. That The word just means old man or elders. Uh, it's a type of the church government that they follow. It's a little bit different than the Reformed church. It had presbyteries, meaning that representative bodies of presbyters or elders ruled and governed. That's much the way our church is run uh, at Harvest Bible Church. So, with all this happening in England, now we've got Elizabeth, we've got Calvinistic ideas in England, everything's going well, Scotland's good, got John Knox up there, um, kicking things around and bringing good theology. So, replacing the Catholic bishops and the priests, at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, Catholic bishops and priests were expelled from the churches. Anglican priests and bishops were now needed to replace them. Anglican, that middle road, Denomination. Returning exiles filled many of the empty bishop, priests, and positions. Those had gone out who had learned Calvinism. In their new roles in Elizabeth's church, they sought to purify the Anglican church from Catholic heirs, and they were called Puritans. 
So Puritans within Elizabeth's government. Uh, Elizabeth, however, was going to prefer liturgy and control as opposed to a Presbyterian form of government. She opposed the reforms of the Puritans. They were a little too radical for her. That's just sarcasm there. She was perfectly willing to assume the head of the Anglican Church, like her father Henry. Uh, the Puritan emphases were to eliminate Episcopal form of church government. Elizabeth didn't want that. This would consist of the bishops and the priests, replacing them with a Presbyterianism. Uh, the Puritans wanted to eliminate non-resident priests who drew a salary but did not minister to the flock in their parish. Shame. Rejected these Puritans, rejected the liturgical leftovers inherited from Catholicism, that of wearing robes, which made you look very important, preaching according to the prescribed liturgy, and kneeling at the communion table. These are all things that churches do today that the Puritans were saying these are not in the Bible. Uh, God's ministers are servants. We are not men to go around in robes and require people to bow or to bow at a communion table. Let's get rid of these liturgies and let's just see what the Bible says. That's how they were trained. And the Bible alone is going to be their authority. Well, this is going to threaten Elizabeth, and she's not going to have anything of it. So if you could see this, and I know you, well, I say I know you can't. If you can read small print, at the top up there on the left, it's Roman Catholicism. And that's going way back to the beginning of church history. Roman Catholicism comes down, and then you, it breaks off. That's the Moravians over there on the right uh, that come from Jan Hus's uh, pre-Reformation. Down here, you have Lutheranism. It moves over a little bit. There's Anglican. It moves all the way over. You've got Reformed and Mennonites. We've looked at those in the past. From the Reform movement comes John Knox and Presbyterianism. So you can see these things kind of spreading. Everyone's got a little bit of different, little bit different tweak on the way a church should be run. Some think it's an independent church. Some think, no, it should be part of the, the establishment church, part of the country. Uh, con- how many of you heard of a congregational church? The congregational church uh, was begun there and then established in America. It's a church that's run democratically. It's everyone getting together. What are we going to do? Let's all vote on it. Um, it's, uh, uh, they don't believe in, in baptism. and uh, They believe in infant baptism. They're Calvinistic. Uh, they vote on everything. Uh, they don't have, uh, it's, it's pretty much everything's run by the people. That's different than a Presbyterian form of government where you've got uh, qualified elders who say this is what we're going to do. And people will submit to those people insofar as they obey and govern according to the Bible. Congregational church. So the, all of these things start stemming out of these areas. Right there in the middle, you've got this, this offshoot, this Puritanism. These Puritans come from the Reform movement, and yet they're under the Anglican church. They're in the Anglican church. Cambridge University became the seat of Puritan opposition to Elizabeth. So they're all, I mean, isn't that amazing? You think that Cambridge University at one time was full of Puritans and set themselves against the queen. Now it's just full of God-hating liberals. This act of uniformity, Elizabeth eventually passed the act of uniformity in 1559, ordering all churches in England to worship as she prescribed. She got a lot of her daddy in her. Many Puritan pastors insisted on conducting worship as they saw fit and denied that Elizabeth had the right to prescribe worship. Well, now you've got once again this fight of who's in charge. Does the, the monarch who's head of the church tell us what to do? Or do we let the Bible tell us what to do? Which is it? We've seen this throughout church history. Popes and emperors. And the Spanish Armada delays Elizabeth. For a while, Elizabeth could not focus on suppressing the Puritans because the Spanish were threatening to invade. So she's got problems on all sides. Finally, in 1588, the Spanish Armada was defeated. Uh, Pretty interesting story there and how that happened. Uh, But she's now in charge. Spain has taken its seat behind her. Elizabeth then began persecuting Puritans. Okay, I guess she wakes up one day, okay, I've beat the Spanish, now I'm going to whip these Puritans. Uh, She was a Christian lady. She believed in Jesus, but she was in charge. This is what happens when you get powerful. No one tells me what to do with my church. My daddy was the king. I'm the queen. We do things as I see fit. No one will tell us how to do it. And so the people that were trying to do that were the Puritans, and she's now going to get rid of them. So this is why they start matriculating over into what would become the United States of America. Is that the right word for that? Matriculating? Does that fit? It, it rolled off the tongue well, anyway. So in 1593, Elizabeth proclaimed that anyone refusing to worship according to the Anglican prayer book had three months to leave England, forfeiting all their property to the crown. If they would not leave, they would be executed. A lot of yard sales going on in those days. 
This is what produced what we call separatists. The Puritans wanted to stay. Many of them wanted to stay in the church and purify it from the middle. Some of you tried to do that in your former churches. Took you a while to leave because you wanted to stay there and make it happen. And you realize this ain't happening. Uh, The separatists just said, we're leaving. Other Calvinists could not worship with the Anglicans. So they... um, So they could not seek to purify the Anglican church. They separated from the Anglican church and were called separatists. Elizabeth persecuted the separatists, even executing them. We should expect that. Um, When it spreads to the countryside, goes outside of London, and people are going to try to do their own thing, their own way, separatists, they started getting larger and larger, this separatist group. And so they had to split into two. Uh, They were met for worship in this very building in Gainesville. The church grew so large that they had to split the congregation in two. Uh, and that's a good thing, but they're, if they're going to be found out, they're going to be killed. Separatists wanted the freedom to worship, and there was um, freedom in neighboring Holland. But they're, they're Englishmen. Who wants to go? Like, if somebody said today, okay, look, you guys can worship all you want. You just have to move to Canada. Or you just have to go to, which we know we couldn't do that in Canada. We'd all be killed in Canada. Uh, but you have to go to Mexico to do that. You, would that be great for you? Well, we're Americans. We want to live here. We don't want to do that. Same would be true with them. It's not a great, hey, well, let's all move to Holland. You know, that wasn't an easy move. Uh, But they knew they could meet there and be free. Um, The last of Henry VIII's heirs finally dies. Uh, When Elizabeth died, there were no more children uh, of Henry VIII to rule. And so uh, the throne went to a distant cousin, King James of Scotland. He was King James VI of Scotland, but he became King James I of England. Um, he had been raised by Presbyterians in Scotland. You'd expect that he would be uh, sympathetic to the Puritan cause, but he doesn't. He didn't like the, the Puritans or the Separatists. Uh, when he dies, uh, his son Charles I ruled and thought of himself as above the law. Imagine that, a king who thinks he's above the law. This is Charles I. Uh, he married a Catholic who sought to pry Charles to Catholicism. He arrested some Puritans on charges that they considered unjustified, and he created a whole civil war there. Anybody know who took over after him? The great Oliver Cromwell. What a great story that is. Scores of Puritans fled fled to the Massachusetts colony and settled near Boston. By the way, they fled trying to get passage to the Virginia Company, and their ship was off course and wound up in Salem, Massachusetts, Moved a little bit more. Uh, some of them moved to areas near Boston. And so this became, this was certainly the more Christian movement. They greatly outnumbered the hundreds of pilgrims, separatists, to the south in Plymouth uh, when they moved up to Boston. The Puritans rebelled, though, back in England. They who were, those who remained in England, led by Oliver Cromwell, rebelled against King Charles I, and the Civil War ensued. Cromwell reigned from... I, I've changed that. I put the dates at another slide. Forgive me. I was changing that earlier. The Puritans won, and they executed uh, King Charles I for treason. Oliver Cromwell reigned or ruled in England for 12 years, 1648 to 1660. Uh, And again, it's one of those guys you're thinking, once he died, his son was inept, and they were unable to maintain this commonwealth. uh, And during the day of, of Cromwell, men like John Owen, the greatest Puritan theologians that ever lived, and John Bunyan. In fact, Owen was the most brilliant of all men. And uh, he was not actually put in prison uh, during those days, while John Bunyan was. Uh, Owen had apparently had some pull. And uh, the king asked him one day, uh, King Charles II, who came in after Cromwell, and said, uh, uh, what, are you, what are you doing following? What, what is your interest with John Bunyan, who's rotting away in prison? And uh, Owen said something to the effect of, he said, I would give up all of my abilities, all of my academic prowess to be able to preach like that tinker, a man who puts pots and pans together, uh, John Bunyan. So during the days of Oliver Cromwell, people like John Owen and John Bunyan are going around preaching a Calvinistic salvation by faith alone in Christ alone gospel all around England. And you think, why, God, did you bring that to a close? Cromwell dies, his son can't reign, and England says, let's go get Charles I, whom we executed. Let's get his son, he'll be good. Charles II brought him in. It wasn't good. John Bunyan spent the next 12 years in jail um, because uh, the only way you could preach in those days, if you said, I'll preach just what the king tells me to preach, and Bunyan said, I'm not doing that. And they put him in jail. And he said, they said, you can leave anytime you want, anytime you decide that you are not going to preach the gospel. 
that you preach with the license we give you what we tell you to do. Bunyan's response, you release me today, I'm preaching tomorrow. And so he stayed in jail for 12 years, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which we'll be studying here soon. So let's take a look in closing the genealogical chart of denominations. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I know. I know, yeah. It's just something you can look at for a while and go, man, Lance is so creative. <laughs> so if we look back at our chart, the Roman Catholic Church from the beginning, it's not, it wasn't Roman Catholic, it was just Catholic. It was a universal church. It became Roman. Um, uh, you've got Wycliffe, and what are the Wycliffeites called? Lollard. You will not forget that again, will you? You better not. Lollardites, Lollards. The Moravian Church, uh, the Moravian Brethren from Jan Hus, these pre-Reformation uh, stalwarts. You've got Luther and Lutheranism. It comes around in the 1530s. John Calvin shortly thereafter in what's called the Reformed Church. Uh, from that, you've got King Henry VIII and his Reformation in England, his quote-unquote Reformation in England. The Reformation didn't occur till, till uh, Edward. Uh, but the Anglican Church is formed. So you've got a Lutheran Church, an Anglican Church, a Reformed Church. You've got Lollardites prior to them, Moravian before them, and everyone who's Roman Catholic. From there, you've got Menno Simons. We looked at the last week or two. Menno Simons is the one that said, look, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to baptize infants. We're going to baptize um, people. It's believer's baptism. We don't believe in, um, in war. The Anabaptist movement, or the Mennonites. These five denominations persist into our own day. And these five became the ancestors of many later Protestant denominations, uh, which the remainder of our classes over the next uh, few weeks will cover the history of these denominations. Small print, but down at the bottom, you've got all of these that stem from those denominations. Let's see, you got your Catholic, you got your, your Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican. I could probably read it better if I looked over there. But yeah. Now go back to that quote I gave in 1 Corinthians. I encourage you, brethren, that there be no divisions among you. Now, are we divided with all these denominations? We are not a denomination. We're non-denominational. Are we divided with them? We're not, folks. On the conservative branch of every one of these, we believe in the same things. That there's one God, that Jesus is that God, that we, uh, by believing in him, have salvation, apart from works, apart from any merit. What we disagree upon are modes of baptism. Who cares? Don't make a big deal about that. Don't ever let yourself make a big deal about that. Especially Baptists who are saying, well, those, those people were baptized as infants. That's okay. Water doesn't save. Salvation's faith that saves. Uh, some people come around, some don't. It's no big deal. Lord's Supper. How do you do the Lord's Supper? Uh, Harvest Bible Church, they have a little crummy wafer and a little vial of juice. That ain't any good. Well, we remember the Lord's death and his second coming every single week. If you need bread and juice to remember that, the problem might be with you. We do it this way better. Oh, we sing hymns. Oh, we don't. There's a guitar and a drum in their band. There's only hymnals over here. Uh, come on, folks. Grow up. Don't ever let these things divide you. Musical preferences, the bread at the Lord's Supper, the water, if it's poured over your head, dunked over your head, or whatever else. Oh, this church is just a, it meets in a metal building. Or this church is a huge cathedral. We are the church by faith. When we gather together, we are there to worship. My brothers, there ought not be any divisions between us, among us. Let that be a convicting thought. There, the, the divisions, however, are between those who do not believe the truth, who do not believe the Bible. Are we to divide with them? Absolutely. They are not of God's people. We find the things that we agree on in the Bible, and some of the things we can say, you know what, you can go one way or the other. My eschatology is that of a pre-millennial, pre-tribulation rapturist. I believe that, but you can be an amillennialist or post-millennialist and still be a Christian. I mean, I know that when I get up here and I teach theology, I'm pretty harsh on those who are amillennialists, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them. They can be wrong. I mean, I don't mind. Um, my wife puts up with me, and she still loves me, and that's, uh, that's how marriage works. That's how friendship works. It's how a relationship with your dog goes. 
We put up with everything. That's just the what life is. So let's do it in the church. They all didn't start that way, but what they've become, you're right. Yeah, they, they are all, we are supposed to be divided with those churches. We are not, you're not to go out and find a church that's liberal just because it's called a church and there's Christ in the name that somehow we are one with him. We are not. If what, what Marianne's saying, that the way people are thinking today, it's anti-biblical. You cannot befriend that and be friends with God. You can't. God hates that. Here's what he said in his word. This is what we believe. We are not to embrace those who reject that. So yeah, what started off, and not all of them, but some of them started off pretty good. What they became was uh, uh, things we're, it's, we're not going to be chastised by God for dividing. We will be rewarded for, for, for understanding and knowing the truth between those two, the division. So yeah, good point. So don't, no way that I want to give that impression. So thank you for saying that, that we're somehow supposed to hold hands with them with. All right, let's pray. Lord, you have worked through sinful men and women for centuries. I suppose that's all you have to work with. And uh, you have brought us to this present day. Well, we still have your word inerrant. You have preserved it for us through all of the garbage, through all of the fighting, all of the divisions. I pray that we, with your power, would not be a part of the dividing that goes on, but that we would separate ourselves from that which is evil, and that yet Christ would speak through us, that the love of Christ would speak through us and our own part in this history. However we might factor into church history, may we shine the light of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for bringing it to where you have today. You have had to, to uh, uh, choreograph this story all the way down to the present day. We are alive, we draw breath, and we are a part of your church. Thank you for allowing that. May we not take a single thing for granted, especially our salvation in Christ that is still available to us to all who will simply believe. We love you. We trust you. We pray that you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.